Good day. Welcome to your favorite place. This is the Trendy Place. This is the Trend Podcast with Justin A. Williams. And I want to introduce you to a great guest today. Remember, we are bringing you awesome content from all across the spectrum. So excited to have you with us. And today, obviously, is no different than any other day, except for the fact that I think we really wanted to focus this year on financial empowerment. We've been hearing back from you guys, and you guys have been talking a lot about the pandemic, money, particularly how can I survive something that is a surprise, right? But we also want to know how we can surprise the day-to-day, right, just in a normal situation. But what is really normal, right? At any time, something can impact your life, like a pandemic, and you say to yourself, do I really have enough in the bank? So financial literacy is really a key thing that I think I try to promote on this program. I think we try to get spread throughout the African-American community, but all communities, all listeners that are listening. And today we have a great guest. Rakim Sabri is the author of the book, Financially Irresponsible, a speaker and a financial coach whose work has been seen and featured in Business Insider, Money.com, Entrepreneur, Black Enterprise, Thrive Global, and more. Rakim also has delivered a TED Talk and frequently delivers content around financial empowerment, entrepreneurship, and the intersection of both in relation to his experience as a black millennial. He's also active on social media at at Rakim Sabri. Great to see you, man. Great to be here. Awesome. I, I, you know, when I was pitched to you by uh, uh, Ann Brown, uh, who does the pitching for us, I was so excited because I had just done something on uh, kind of financial uh, empowerment a couple of uh, episodes ago. And what I felt like I wanted to continue the conversation with was what you are calling trauma, I guess you say financial trauma. And I found that concept really interesting because I've talked to a lot of people about, you know, the reparations argument. People talk about trauma in that sense. People also talk about, you know, I am mixed, but both my parents, my dad was mixed, but white passing. And my mom is, you look at it and you say she looks like an African-American woman, but she's she's mixed um, as well. But they both growing up were very concerned with the trauma of we got to make ends meet every day right and we and we we do we have enough in the bank we have a third kid coming on the way we were okay with two kids now we got a third kid can we really make it and the trauma learning from both my parents of uh certain things happen in their lives to their parents who are taking care of the money that really put them on a different trajectory uh, a trajectory that was a lot of struggle but directly where they had to be independent-minded. And because they had to survive the back against the wall, they had to become financially literate. But we don't want people to always be in that position. We want people to be literate and educated when they're successful too or when nothing is going on. So what is your theory on this, on financial trauma? What Can you explain that for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a super layered concept, right? Because financial trauma, uh, we'll talk about the black community specifically, can be... Um, the result of experiencing poverty, right? It can be the result of being barred access to resources. But when you look on the other end of that spectrum, right to your point, people who have never had an issue with money, right? They've always had money. They've always been able to get what they want. They can also Mm -hmm. experience trauma. And so I guess it really kind of depends on how you define trauma. um, Mm -hmm. And then how does that trauma impact your relationship? So I define financial trauma as any instance either observed or experienced that negatively impacts the way that you view interact with or believe about money 
Um, and okay. so that could be something as simple as somebody saying, oh, credit cards are bad. Don't use credit cards. And you internalize that and decide not to use credit cards or something as devastating as losing your job, being evicted, uh, laid off or any of those kind of things. Right. Like, how do we survive in this situation? A pandemic. Right. I'm sure that that's inflicted mm-hmm. a lot of financial trauma on a lot of people. And the trauma piece of it is like the echo afterwards. Right. So after we get past this major instance, experience, what have you, how do we then view our interactions with money and how do we allow that situation to impact whether or not we save, where we save, whether or not we invest, Mm. how we invest, what we invest in. Right, right. And all of those things, it's it's like a a ripple effect. And I think the worst part of it is how we articulate our trauma or or, or pass on our trauma to other people. Mm. That's true too. Lived experiences do come down. I mean, I... Uh, you'd be, when I see in my own life, how sometimes I repeat the things that my parents had done or went through, it's, it's fascinating. And I think that they do say in science now, even biologists say that certain traumas, uh, can be passed down genetically, um, and, and, and felt on, on, on particularly young babies. Um, but in the black community, um, or even in, uh, uh, the poor communities in this country, um, that's a really good point to make about like the everything that you're taught is a sense of trauma. Trauma meaning that it's a negative, right? That you're taught uh, a, the bad ruji of debt, right? The bad ruji of consolidation, the bad ruji of, oh, don't go to Wall Street. They're all a bunch of uh, rich white folk over there. That's not your place. Right. Um, the 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 bad things, the negative things that we learn, and I know this just from knowing my grandfather. I mean, he can, he, he's a very lovable guy, but he, when it comes to uh, money or risk or investment, you know, he's very averse. You know, he's very superstitious, as you might say. 100%. Um, and I think, you know, some of the things that you just pointed out are um, are important to point out, too, right? I've heard, um, and not from anybody in my family directly, but I've heard, you know, that's, that's for white people, right? Investing is for white people mm-hmm. or... Um, you know, some black people disenfranchised with this concept of credit and building credit because they've had a negative experience or they don't know how to navigate it. And so it's just like, oh, you know, you if I say anything close to 800 credit score, like what? You have 800 credit score. It's like these things are, are foreign concepts. And so mm-hmm. my job as a financial educator is to make these concepts less foreign. But then mm-hmm. after doing that, right, because there's a lot of financial educators out there. How do we connect the dots? And so a lot of the work that I've done lately is um, <clears throat> is around kind of pulling the 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 wool over, uh, from over people's eyes, right, around mm-hmm. how financial education is delivered, particularly to black people, in that mm-hmm. this approach that says everybody has even footing and everybody can do it and everybody, you know, everybody mm-hmm. can pull themselves up from the bootstraps is a lie, And so Mm -hmm. when you look at the financial educator influencers who are talking to audiences that have not had the obstacles historically, culturally, Mm -hmm. politically that black people do, it begs the question, like, when do we get recognition? And so um, I've been relatively successful in kind of having this Mm -hmm. conversation and saying, hey, no, financial education for black people needs to be delivered differently. We need to have an acknowledgement of our culture and our history, especially in this country. Mm-hmm. And the lack of trust. 
the lack of trust that comes with these institutions because, and, and it's not, not unwarranted lack of trust, right? Because of abuse right. that we've right. experienced in these industries and how do we overcome mm-hmm. those things and mm-hmm. start to leverage the tools that um, mm-hmm. non-Black people have leveraged to build wealth and maintain wealth in this country. Right. I mean, look at what happened, you know, only a generation or so after slavery, we already had two locations in this country, one in Tulsa, Another one, I think, in Greenpoint, uh, North Carolina, where they were what you would consider, and even in New York, too, what you consider a black Wall Street, you know, a black financial center. This is like these are people who were either children when slavery was happening or some of them could have been adults but survived slavery or the children, young children of slavery. But these are people who within a generation of being a slave now a slave, you have no financial literacy, no financial power, no self-determination. And you change that within a generation to you're creating your own financial institutions and banks. What that signals to me uh, as a black man in 2022 and for the whole community is we can do this quickly. I don't think this is something that necessarily has to be thought of as, oh, this is going to take three generations for us to get to where we need to be. Obviously, there's obstacles that are differently sophisticated now, but I think a lot of what holds people back is that they feel as though this is going to take a long time. Do you think it will take a long time? Uh, I have mixed feelings um, because remedying trauma is going to be different, right, for each person, um, especially sure. when you look at how how many generations of trauma exist. And mm-hmm. so, um, I mean, we're going to open Pandora's box here, but there's a lot of distrust, not only from Black people to financial institutions, but among black people, right? So Mm -hmm. how can we overcome that mistrust in getting to a place where we can work together and start establishing Mm -hmm. like group economics, like some of these um, other um, ethnic groups have done. Um, We have to establish community. And and what does Mm -hmm. that mean? We have to control culture, right? Because we establish culture but mm-hmm. then very often culture is co-opted and commercialized. And now you see mm-hmm. like the white girls right. on TikTok doing the dances that we created. Right. So right. Um, th- it's it's defining and managing power, um, which can be a long haul. Right. Because black mm-hmm. people are not a monolith. No, and, no. Um, you know, we're, we're going to be coming from different perspectives on the off air. You and I were talking about. the the different approaches to what this looks like, right? Conservative versus, you know, very liberal. And a lot of black people blindly follow, you know, liberal kind of concepts and beliefs around, you know, Mm -hmm. money and and everything else. And it's just like, why why do we have this blind loyalty? Mm -hmm. And um, on the other side of it, you have black conservatives who, yeah, they get it financially, but then you know what else comes with the with with that sure. <laughs> with that strict well, yeah, conservative yeah. nature, right? I got so, what you're saying, right? Um, yeah. How do we kind of create our own identity instead mm-hmm. of living up to the identity that's being created for us? I think that's a really brave statement, and I think it really speaks to the polarity that is artificial, right? If you look in other countries, other European countries, they may have six, five different political parties. And they all have historically had a, a good chance of winning. Uh, if you look in our country, we're very bipolar. We're very much Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. Not a lot of wiggle room for what's in the middle, um, really. And we don't really have, you know, 
third parties haven't been successful in this country. Um, even though the Republican Party technically started as an auxiliary party. Um, what I find fascinating is that a lot of it is is handed down within the family, financial literacy, right? I mean, if you if you have a family that has generations of not even owning a bank, just going to the bank, just working with a banker, you as a child know, okay, your dad's or your mom's going to be like, oh, yeah, I'll hook you up with my guy, right? Who? That, that's I've heard that all my life because I've I've grown up in white society. I went to white private school. All I hear is, oh yeah, my dad's got a guy. My mom's got a got a person, right? And that makes it so you're not even thinking of the hard part. You're not thinking of anything complicated with financing. You're just thinking someone's going to do the job for me and it'll get done, right? And I think, you know, do I think a lot of affluent African Americans have a similar identity too, whether they um, want to uh, pass that down to their kids, but it's this kind of offshoring of the real education of it. And I think what we want to have happen is we want to have people who can understand the grit and grind of financing and are educated themselves, right? That they're not just saying, oh, I'll just have my advisor do this because this, that, that, that guy might not be an expert or know what to do. And that can be frustrating. Right, don't there's what 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 would you think in in 2022 is the smartest way for uh, um, an African American of any age to dip their first waters into financing? Is it a certain book? Is it a certain influencer like yourself? Uh, what would you say is the first step? Um, as I think about the answer to that question, I just want to kind of touch on something that you just said because I, I could see it going mm-hmm. both ways, right? I think there's value and having that direct to professional, right? Um, One of the obstacles that I think a lot of people kind of stop at and, you know, trying to manage their finances is how, who do I go to, right? Whether that's an accountant or a a state attorney or, you know, Mm -hmm. an investment advisor or whoever. Um, And if you have somebody kind of feed that to you, at least you have a place to start, right? You're not building from scratch. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other end of that, I do think that you're right. And that's why I titled my book, Financially Irresponsible. Um, There's a lot of people out there who just kind of defer the hard work to somebody else. And they're like, oh, somebody else will take care of it. I don't have to worry about it. But, But when you pass off that responsibility, you don't get to peek behind the hood and really understand the mechanics of what's going on. And understanding right. the business model for a lot of advisors um, or planners includes, you know, getting a percentage of the money that they're managing, your money, right? So right. if you right. could cut out the middleman, you could save yourself, especially as you grow in wealth, significant dollars because you're managing it yourself. Um, mm-hmm. Back to your question, I think um, there, there are a variety of, of good starting points. Um, I don't want to plug myself up, but I will because my experience as a millennial black man in finance is that like, that's the reason why I decided to share it. So financially irresponsible is the book. And um, I basically talk about, you know, entering banking at 21 years old and and where can we get that? Book? It's available on Amazon. Okay. Great. Um, entering banking at 21 years old. And then, you know, a lot of the things that I learned in that space, just kind of by osmosis, Mm -hmm. but then the independent studies that I've done outside of just on the job stuff, right? Uh, Years ago, I would recommend the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. 
And um, I've yes. gotten away from that because I have my own book, right? I can I can plug that up, mm. and also because Robert Kiyosaki's content um, is one thing, but his person is something else, right? Who does he have in mind okay. when he created that book? Mm. And right. is it to the benefit of the people that look like me? Probably mm. not, right? When I wrote my book, right. I wrote it with people that look like me in mind. I wrote it with my struggle. Mm-hmm and the obstacles and the barriers and the racism and, and all of those things in mind. So understanding mm-hmm. how those things play a role in um, what financial success looks like has been articulated mm-hmm. through the pages mm-hmm. of that book. So I would definitely plug up my book. Um, if you want to get a little sophisticated, I think uh, Poweronomics by Dr. Claude Anderson is definitely a good read. And that kind of speaks to okay. what we talked about earlier. Right. And how do you establish community and and start mm-hmm. building? Um, and then his urgent message in that book is like, we're running out of time. Right. So to your point, yeah. does it is it going to take multiple generations over? According to him, we don't have that time. Right. We have to start executing right. on it right. like yesterday. But I think that's right. definitely a good um, stepping stone. And there's a variety of black authors out there who talk about their experiences in finance, what they've learned, what they've overcome. And so, um, I mean, I can't think of all of them off the top of my head, but, you know, if you do some digging, you'll find it. Um, but I also think that psychology plays a big role in it, right? Understanding human behavior, yeah. understanding um, behavioral finance, understanding, you know, how yeah. how um, consumers move and, and, and make decisions. And, and we're very much... Yeah a consumer-driven economy um, within a capitalist right. society, right? So understanding mm-hmm. that on the back end of your decisions financially, somebody is either getting paid or not getting paid. And so do you right. want to be that person getting paid or the mm-hmm. that person who's making the payments? Um, right. Yeah, so I'll stop there. No, that, thank you. Yeah, that was that was great. You know, I... It, it, I heard the other day, I was sometimes I follow a lot of um, the rappers that I follow on, on on Instagram tend to talk about financial empowerment quite a bit. Rick Ross talks about it. Um, Killer Mike talks about it a lot. Um, and then so I heard them say a story. One of them say a story where they said, if you have a kid and you're giving him a couple of dollars for doing the chores. You're rewarding that person for doing a relatively uh, easy job that um, didn't take a lot of uh, intellectual challenging to do. And you're preparing that person for that kind of lifestyle and that kind of work later. However you want to judge it. But if you say, you know what, for every book you read, right, or for every new word you learn, I'll give you some compensation right what you're doing is you're preparing them to be compensated for one working independently and two using creativity in a way where they are accomplishing a task but they're they're really empowering themselves off that task same way a ceo or an executive would work off of a business meeting or something or a power lunch and and i think that is really about two cultures in in this country i think when you have a kind of Booker T. Washington perspective of just trying to, we need to uh, do whatever we can right now to do what we feasibly can to succeed, as opposed to the ideal, 
which is like a WB the boys looking at it, right? Like the talented 10th. And we need to train people to be in that 10th. And do you think people, whoever are our thought leaders in the African-American community, do you think we're really able to understand financial empowerment? Do you think we're able to teach people to not have the kind of pay for every chore mentality, but to have the kind of pay for something that's a little more complicated mentality? Or do you think maybe our leaders are, are, are failing us? Uh, I like this question, and I just want to take a second to think about my answer. Um, sure. I'll say this. I think that the term financial empowerment is often used synonymously with the term financial literacy, and they're different. So okay. how do you define okay. financial empowerment, I think, is the first starting point. Um, financial empowerment is... I mean, when you break down the words, financial and and being empowered. So you're empowered to make decisions through your finances. And I'll give an example of what financial empowerment is for me. Last May, May 2021, I left my job because I was unhappy. Mm -hmm. Um, I was working on other things and I was being questioned and bullied and I was experiencing anxiety and I felt like I had to be a different person, like my identity was. And so I said, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. So I left. And the only Mm -hmm. reason why I could leave is because I felt financially empowered, right? I had money in the bank. I had access to credit. So I was just like, however long it takes me to figure out what the next step is, I can do that. But when Mm -hmm. I shared that with the world, I tweeted it. Um, After I sent my resignation letter, it went viral. 2.2 million impressions. And within that Uh viral activity, there were a lot of people congratulating me, telling me that, you know, they wish that they could do the same thing or they want to do the same thing, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Right. And some people were sharing, like, I can't do what you did because I have no money. Right. So um, it's like this concept of how do we find money? Right. Um, And like you said, using using strategy, using your brain, using your talent to generate money opportunities instead of embracing this mentality that we've all been programmed to embrace in mm-hmm. trading our time for money within an organization that provides us this illusion of security. As far right. as the leadership goes, um, I would I would again say, how do you define leadership, right? Who is, who are you listening to? Um, because, you know, I think Rick Ross and Keller Mike, they're doing great work in using their platform to talk about financial literacy and what it is that financial literacy has done for them, but they're using right. their platforms after they have arrived financially. Different from me, right? Okay. Where I'm building yeah. financially and I'm using my platform as I build to share, oh, I learned right. this thing. Oh, I learned that thing. I, I ran into this obstacle, right. right? And it's not to say that, you know, any shade to Killer Mike or to um, Rick Ross, Rick Ross. Yeah. but... Um, I guess when I when I mean like uh, our thought leaders, I'm thinking people like Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson. I'm thinking. Well, of, that I, I would uh, I would again say, well, who <laughs> who are you listening to, right? So um, right. I'll use and and I, I know I know that my dad's gonna listen to this podcast, and I know that he's gonna laugh when he hears what I'm about to say because we talk about it all the time. When you look at um, the Nation of Islam, right, and Minister Farrakhan. And before Farrakhan, right, his teacher, and Malcolm X and his teacher, 
um, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, mm -hmm. they talk about doing for self and they've been talking about it for years, for decades, right? This idea mm -hmm. of going out and building and creating your own so that you don't have to ask somebody else for it. And sure. so when you talk about leadership and you talk about censorship, right? Farrakhan cannot have a platform on any of the major social medias. He's banned. Mm -hmm. um, he's been labeled as uh, anti-Semitic. He's been labeled as, you know, a hate speech monger. But have, mm -hmm. have, have you ever listened to him speak? Yeah. I have. So yeah. I think, you know, a lot of people... Um, and I'm biased because I grew up listening to him speak, but I think a lot of people mm -hmm. listen to what the media says about that man and doesn't listen to what that man has to say. And um, mm -hmm. he has been talking about the very same things that we're talking about in this conversation for decades. Mm -hmm. So again, it goes back into okay. who are you listening to, right? What has uh, mm -hmm. Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton said about financial empowerment for black people? Mm -hmm. What uh, have they demonstrated as far as leadership when it comes to these topics? Mm -hmm. And then why mm -hmm. is, why are they who we define as thought leaders? Who, el who else mm -hmm. is out there, right? We can look at Dr. Claude Anderson, right? He's another thought leader, right? Mm -hmm. He's been putting out his content for, mm -hmm. for years as well. Um, why do mm -hmm. they not get the same spotlight? I think that's, a, that's mm -hmm. an important well, question. I, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I think, I think, I think, um, uh, you know, I think there are thought leaders in the African-American community that uh, are more geared towards, um, obviously, an agenda that is trying to uh, speak to racial and political issues. And then I think there are thought leaders that are a little bit more specific. If you look at like Malcolm Gladwell, if you look at like uh, Cornell West, Cornell West tends to talk about democracy. Malcolm Gladwell talks about uh, culture a lot, but we don't really have uh, a very prominent. We have we obviously. We, I mean, I don't think a lot of African Americans can name the five richest African Americans that are not entertainers. I don't think they can really do that. Um, and and not to say that necessarily a Jewish person or an Irish person can do that. But I think white people can name, can at least be in the ballpark of the top 10 richest white people um, that are not entertainers. And that's because the top 10 richest white people are probably not entertainers. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? And I think that a lot of, a lot of, a lot of entertainers that are wealthy um, in the African American community are wealthy partially because they hire really good people around them. And um, whatever they do know about financial impacts, futures, equity, uh, what to do with your taxes, where to store your money, uh, maybe they feel like it's just that just wouldn't be sexy enough. That wouldn't be cool. That's not what the kids want to hear, right? The kids want to hear you say something more about your Jordans or more about your Lambo or what chain you're wearing um, in, in all communities of kids. Uh, you know, it's all tailored towards young people, but I think. Um, you know, if we could have some more people in our community that are uh, successful financially or not even people who are just on the come up like you and I. Right. And sharing you know, the real nuts and bolts of things like the like giving us a civics level lesson on 
day to day on what to do. I see it for cryptocurrency. I follow so many cryptocurrency influencers. I see it all the time. They, 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 every day they're telling you either about what specific crypto, why blockchain, this explaining. And I, maybe, maybe, maybe there's something about the way we communicate. Maybe it's a cultural difference, right? That like maybe in, in our community, when we communicate things, we tend to focus on um, a different set of values, a different set of uh, consequences from money than do uh, other cultures. Do you, do you see that? I think that there is a fixation on money that exists within our community that doesn't exist outside of our community. And so with okay. that, um, these things that we're spending a lot of time, and I'll speak for myself, that I'm spending a lot of time teaching and talking about are things that come as just instinctual or reflex or as a reflex um, and within those communities, right? So my exposure to real estate, credit, life insurance, um, all of mm -hmm. those uh, retirement planning came as a result right. of interacting with white peers who would have these conversations yeah. very openly, very candidly, and very just mm -hmm. kind of like, oh, this is just a part of the a part of the routine. Yeah, they've been doing that since high school. So for yeah. me, I'm just like drilled to the ground, like, wait a second, what? And it was like, right. to your point earlier, it was as simple as, oh, well, let me connect you with this person that my mom works with. Right. And so right. Um, mm -hmm. I took those experiences and those accomplishments at, back to my community and like, look, look what I've done. This is how you can do it, too. But really, mm -hmm. I was like in, in the race with these guys behind them right by the time i bought my first house right. this particular peer that i'm referring to had owned um was owning two had two houses right and um shortly after bought a third had three houses um within their 30s and i'm just like well, man like <laughs> i gotta catch up so but right. in my community I bought a house before 30 and that was just, that was the accomplishment. That's like, a big oh, deal. Shoot, you got a house. That's a big deal. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I, again, I think like there's a fixation and I think it's, I think it's appropriate, but there's a fixation mm -hmm. on uh, finances in a way that is not existent within non-black communities. And so um, you think about, to your point, who are the people that have the money and how do they get the money without, and not to say that being an athlete or entertainer is um, not difficult, no, yeah. right? But like, of course, it, it's, it's to your point, it's more sexy, right? I've, you know, I grew up in mm -hmm. a town in New York that is known for basketball and producing basketball players, right? So what Mount town? Vernon. What town? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So um, all of the kids. Oh, Ben yeah, Gordon. Ben, ben Gordon. Gordon, exactly. All of the yeah. kids, they go and they want to play basketball. So, you know, they start mm -hmm. from very young and, you know, the goal is to right. get good and go to the NBA. Right. And mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. where the funding is. I was an athlete right. in high school and of all of the athletic teams that existed, the basketball team got dibs on everything. They got the newest, the right. newest courts and the newest locker rooms and the newest uniforms. And mm -hmm. that's where the money went. So... Mm -hmm. What what message did that deliver to a young person in the community or even their family, right? To a, to an right. adult person, like when I have a kid, I'm gonna make them play basketball because that's how they're gonna get the opportunity to do and be and and so what what is there to be said about the other talents, right? I was a musician growing up, 
Well, you know, how mm-hmm. much money do the band the band groups get? I was an mm-hmm. artist growing up. How much how much money do the art programs get? Right. And and how mm-hmm. do we choose to or choose not to nurture those talents based off of what we view or define as being practical for what, mm-hmm. you know, financial when you're talking about finances, for what financial freedom can look like and escaping this environment. Right. So um right. definitely a lot to unpack there, but I think um I think that you're right. It's just, mm-hmm. it's necessary to provide context. You ever watch Shark Tank? All the time. One of my favorite shows. O'Leary, is it Robert O'Leary? Kevin. Is that his name? Kevin. Love this Mr. guy. Mr. Wonderful. So, <laughs> yeah, Mr. Wonderful. He was just in Congress talking about um, uh, the crypto regulations that are coming out. And what I like about him is he says this quote when he's being interviewed. He says, I have never thought about money, making money. I've never thought about making money so that I'd be rich. See, this is what you have to find. You have to find your value and then the purpose for what you want. It's not about being rich, the fact that I can spend this or spend that. To be honest, I don't like, I hate the fact that I'm spending anything. I hate when money leaves Mm -hmm. me, right? But I do it for the freedom. I'm sitting here with you. I don't have to be anywhere else. No one's calling me, telling me where to go. No one's threatening to fire me. I've made enough money. I put myself in the right position. Now I have freedom. And for the rest of my life, if, as long as I don't really fuck it up, I will have that same kind of freedom again. And I think there's so many arguments from the left and the right about what freedom means in this country, mm. what freedom can mean, right? A lot of people on the left are saying there is no freedom. As If one person is suffering, then the whole country is indicted, right? If one group is unperforming, then it must be racism. It must be discrimination. It must be the institutions. The other side is saying the complete opposite, right? Institutions are what made us successful and traditions. And just because one person suffers doesn't bring down the whole ship and and that. And I think that what the problem is, is that we are forgetting that um, when we all feel that sense of freedom, it's a very similar feeling for all of us. It might take different things. But, you know, there are black people that are artists that can relate to a white artist. Right. So I believe in finding your groove, finding what fits you, and then maximizing that. A lot of times people say they want to maximize something that they're honestly not that good at. Right. Everybody wants to be an influencer now. Easy money. But are you really that are you really that dedicated to when you need to post every time and exactly how to curate your posts and how to network, make connections? Are you willing to go and move to LA, not know anybody, and start from scratch? Right? Are you willing to do these things? And they think, oh, maybe I'm not willing to do that thing, right? But when you maximize yourself, when you're doing something that's in your pocket, right? Like I know I've always been great at history, humanities, religion, studying, all that. Math, not my strong suit. So it's dumb for me to try to make my money in math, right? Uh, Essentially, as my max. I can always get better. I can learn new skills and things like that. But what I really want to do is I really want to find where my passion meets my optimal like talent. This is my philosophy. And I think it's helped me during the pandemic. And I think... It can it can really help people see through the the bullshit that's on that it's a lot of media outlets about really um, why you're struggling, right? I think so many times uh, people in the African American and Hispanic community, uh, even the Asian and historically Jewish community too, we, we we get fed these 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 untruths about the state of our economic status. Uh, the state of how in danger or threatened we are, how powerful we are, how we're doing academically. 
And it's all skewed by this talk of, well, it's because America hates you, right? And because you get that, you feel like, well, why would I care about any institution, right? My grand, my dad and my grandfathers, and I'm sure your dad and your grandfather's generation, I think we're probably a similar age. They were like, all these institutions are white. Well, you know what? I'm going to knock on that door anyway. I'm going to, I'm going to knock on that door as much as I can. And if someone gives me an opportunity, I'm going to make it a little bit chocolater, right? I'm going to make it a little bit darker. I'm going to make it a little bit more equitable, a little bit more fairer. One of me is going to, is going to lead, I'm going to blow somebody else up. It's going to lead to two more and three more. And just like how the Irish had to get in, right? When the when the Dutch had it, just like the Italians had to get in when they weren't allowed, just as Jewish people had to get in when they weren't allowed. African-Americans, we've been fighting to get in too. And a lot of us have gotten in. And there's more of us there than the media tells us. And what I want to see is us being able to do the smart thing, which is take advantage of the internet. The internet is a great balancer because the way I learned about financial empowerment is culturally. I learned it from my friends. I learned it from my father who worked in the business. I learned it from my mom. It was all in the cultural mix of living in Long Island in the North Shore, right? But you don't need that anymore. That's not a barrier anymore because you can spend a, get a cheap laptop, you can get cheaper Wi-Fi, and you can go on the internet or you can go to somewhere public and get on the internet, and you can Google anything. Anything you want. You want to learn about how to make money. You want to learn about how someone made money. You can Google that and find out. And I think that maximizing that is a simple way for us to take a really good step. Yeah. You said a lot. Um, And I'm going to, there's two things that I just wanted to touch on. Kevin O'Leary and the statement that you made about him um, goes back to this point that I made about the fixation, right? Kevin O'Leary says he did not dream about being rich. And I think that there's some privilege in that, right? Because, sure, you know what I'm saying? If you grew up in poverty, then every day you're thinking about being rich. I don't know if you no, grew no, no, up I, I, I'm, I, I'm I know, thinking about for me. Yeah. You know, every day yeah, you're yeah. thinking about, like, I do not like what... The, I made a statement once. I said, um, I never want to be poor again. That was, sure. that was a statement. And that's kind right. of how I live my life financially. And so that mm-hmm. experience of experiencing poverty, even if it was for a short period of time, is a financial trauma mm-hmm. that then drives a positive result, right? Now I'm like wanting to be financially yeah. literate and make the best financial decisions and be responsible, what have you. No, that, that that's exactly what I did too. I mean, I, so I grown up, you know, being able to comfortably, if we had to buy something, get money, but I was, I was poor and homeless after college. Yeah. So that drove me then to think, okay, whatever money I do get, I remember the old lessons of investment and I said, I'm going to work. I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to try to get out of the situation. But if I do have a little extra, I'm going to invest yep. it. And I'm going to try and find something that can get me so I'm not in this situation anymore. So I, I, I definitely understand that piece too. And I think with Kevin O'Leary, you know, he, he I don't think he grew up poor, but he definitely was self-made. He yeah. created his own Well, I, I don't I don't believe in the concept of self-made, but I, I, I know what you're saying. And, and I like Kevin yeah. O'Leary and I like his philosophies about money. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that he was um, talking about crypto regulations because he was very anti-crypto for a while, and then all of a yeah. sudden, like things changed because he, you know, he sees the writing mm-hmm. on the wall. But um, right. you know, I'll speak about black people specifically, and of course, this is not the experience of all black people. 
But when you talk about mm-hmm. um, like the fixation, when I talk about the fixation on money, right? The desired mm-hmm. destination is to get rich. And so it's the mindset mm-hmm. shift that says, I don't, I'm not worried about being rich. I'm worried about being free. And like you said, how do you define mm-hmm. freedom? It's going to look different for a lot of people. Um, I forgot what the second point was that you said that I wanted to react to, but um, I, I'm, I'm feeling very similar to you on a lot of these concepts, um, as, especially as it relates to building up ourselves. Oh, I was saying the internet was an equalizer. I don't know if that's what. Uh, I don't. I completely lost it. <laughs> it's not coming back. <laughs> okay. All right. But um, but yeah, I think I think money is more money is more psychological than it is anything else. And that's the lesson mm-hmm. that, that we need to be teaching when, when we talk about money, right? It's the mindset shift that says, am I open to opportunities financially? And mm-hmm. in being open to those opportunities financially, how then do we get to live in whatever is our purpose, right? Elon Musk, right. Jeff Bezos, arguably... Well, not arguably, some of the richest men, like they rotate, right? They're richest men in the world one mm-hmm. week, the next week. They're building rocket ships. They can do whatever they want. They're building, they right. want to go out of space. They're building rocket ships. Well, that's they're little that, boys that's now. Financial again. freedom. They're, they're so rich that they're like, they're like boyhood boys again. They're doing, they're fulfilling their boyhood dreams. That's, a, that's an important archetype to, uh, to kind of underscore, mm-hmm. right? Because when money is no longer an issue, for you, you get to live out your passion in whatever way that looks. So yes. you use the analogy of a black artist and a white artist. Yeah. You know, when you take money out of the equation, then what do they get to do? They get to produce art. But when you add right. money into the equation, right, and you're a struggling artist mm-hmm. and you're not making money based off of the work that you produce, mm-hmm. then now you, and now I know what I was going to say. I made a statement on Twitter once. And I said, um, I was, it was kind of like a warning to entrepreneurs, um, about having learning to resent your passion because you're trying to monetize it. And so many times, Mm -hmm. and like you said, I'll use the, the influencer as an example. So many times people pursue this passion that was fun for them, right? Like who doesn't like to post mm-hmm. pictures and do this and do that and talk about their experiences and, yeah. you know, maybe you're a food influencer, maybe, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But when you have to start monetizing that passion and you have to make a post every day for this particular organization right. saying this particular thing, it takes the fun out of it. And now you start to resent the thing does, yeah. that gave you joy. And, and, and it's a struggle right. that a lot of us, and I'll use myself included, have experienced like there have been times where I'm like, man, I don't want to talk about money today. And I don't, I have the freedom to, to do that. Yeah. Right. But I've branded myself as a financial professional. Right. So God forbid I go up on Twitter or Instagram or any of the other platforms and say something that is contrary to um, what is considered financially responsible. And yeah. everybody eats me alive. Like what? Like I'll say, Oh, I just spent, you know, X amount of dollars on, I'll use a random example. Uh, Kanye sneakers, right? The sneakers I don't even care yeah. about, and they're like, oh, yeah. that's not very responsible. There's going to be two. There's going to be probably like likely two responses. Either Rakim has a lot of money that he could spend it on this thing, or Rakim made a decision that was financially irresponsible given the circumstances that he's in. 
one mm-hmm. of those two responses. And so um, I think, again, going back to this point of who are you listening to? Who is your leadership, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's accountability in what is said or what is not said, or what is done or mm-hmm. what is not done, right? That um, going into these spaces as a leader or a accept, or accepting the title as leader um, that right. really kind of like informs some of the decisions that you make or, or don't make. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it really lies in decision-making skills. You know, there's like a lot of nuts and bolts skills that I think um, we learn in different ways in different cultures. And I think that it's a lot about legacy. It's about learning it from the top, from someone in your family. I think um, a grandfather or a father or a mother or a grandmother aunt. you know, um, that's why I do think it's, it's interesting, you know, a lot of people when they come over here from other countries, they stack. They do the things that African Americans used to do back in the 40s and 50s, which is you'd have three generations in a house. And all of them are talking about things that are relating to their particular moment, but it always trickles down, right? The kids are hearing stories from grandpa and grandma, and the parents are learning from the kids. And then everybody's kind of in this mix of like, well, Papa was talking about financial literacy today to his friend, and I don't know what that means, but it seemed like a cool word, so I brought it up in class, and then my teacher taught me about it. Bam, right? That's the spark. And then that can lead you to 10,000 different places. For my father, my father grew up in poverty. My mom grew up in poverty. For them, it was just that, you know, for my dad, it was the fact that this one guy, he's singing in church, and this one guy from a private school was looking for tall kids for a basketball team, sees my dad singing. He asks my grandfather, "Does do you have his grades? My grandfather ran home, brought the grades there. My dad was in a, a better school at, from that point on, a private school from that point on. Totally changed his life, right? And then he's learning about these, what you might call these white people things, right? So my mom is same thing. So I think a lot of times it's, we have to not be, a, I understand tribalism. I understand that a lot of times tribalism is justified because you have the tribalism from someone who's been historically oppressed. Why would they be nice? Why would they like your institutions? Why would they engage you? But I think that if we really want to make a cost-benefit analysis, it benefits our community to do whatever we can to bum rush these institutions and to also make ourselves institutions, right? We don't have to work at Goldman Sachs for 10 years. You don't have to work at Morgan Stanley for 20 years. You can work for yourself. You can start your own thing, right? But there's lessons learned from, you know, I feel it too. Even though I've grown up around white people, I still feel when I watch CNBC that I'm not fairly represented. You know, I'm seeing people that I've grown up with and I'm like, there's, there's no one that looks like me on this channel. There's no one that's talking to me and talking to my community's issues on this channel. And I get that that's a problem. But we're not going to get that kind of channel unless we understand CNBC a little bit. Mm, can... I, I have mixed feelings. And, and I remember what I was going to say now. Um, you made a comment about my about our parent and grandparent generations and, you know, what is it they didn't. My, my reaction was my father and grandfather are separatists. Hundred percent, like okay. they're like okay. do for self. I mean, that's what that that's where it came from. That's what I learned. Um, mm-hmm. So, and it's funny because me and my dad was having this conversation the other day. We were talking about the HBCUs, 
and how um, how those institutions are geared towards producing successful Black individuals, right? Um, as opposed to okay. trying to fight your way into a Harvard or a Yale or NYU or Cornell, right? And all of those schools, mm-hmm. well, not all of them, but NYU, Johns Hopkins, Cornell, like those were schools that were really high on my list. Like I was very opposed when I was at high school level, very opposed to going to um, an HBCU. My dad would like beg mm-hmm. me, beg me, like apply to HBCU, apply to go to this place, go to that. But mm-hmm. I, like you, thought like, okay, I'm going to be in with the elite, Right. And that Mm -hmm. this is going to give me opportunities to then go and do whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel differently now at 32, uh, almost 32, than I did at 18, because I realized that, you know, you use the term tribalism and um, and I'll just I'll use that term as well. There is value in that community. And in, in, in the specifics of understanding each other and building each other up. And maybe the issue was that we've gotten away from that more than it's not. Okay. Um, hmm. Now, I'm, I'm going to contradict. So you're saying we're not, we're not as much of a, uh, we don't act as a community because as we're, much. Because we're, we're trying desperately to break into, you know, okay. communities that aren't us. Now yeah, I'm going, I'm going to spaces, yeah. contradict myself very quickly um, and say that a lot again, a lot of the things that I've learned and that I've been exposed to, I've learned outside of my community, particularly financially. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think, like you said, that there is value in learning wherever you can learn, right? Even mm-hmm. if we look at tribalism right. from a perspective of um, geographical, geographic mm-hmm. tribalism, right? There are many people in this country mm-hmm. who've never left this country. Mm-hmm. I've left this country multiple times, right? I've been to Iceland. Uh, I've been to Spain. I've been to Morocco. Mm-hmm. I've been to Dominican Republic, Antigua. Like, mm-hmm. I've been to different places. And those um, experiences have expanded drastically my worldview. So I'm not viewing the world from the perspective of just somebody who's American and entitled in my being American, right? We're the best country in yeah. the world. I've I've had different experiences that have informed like how other people live, how other people think, how, I mean, Mm -hmm. even something as simple as going to a restaurant, the experience of Mm -hmm. going to a, you know, like a place to eat or a restaurant type place in Spain and um, not having to worry about paying a tip because they don't have a tip system. Right. Versus here is just like something like minuscule, but still very, very impactful. So, um, mm-hmm. there is value in, in cultural exchange. And I'm not saying that by any means, mm-hmm. but I think that. Mm-hmm. But as equals. Absolutely. You, 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 you want, you want to, you want to make sure you're in a position so that you're an equal when you are exchanging. And I think I hear what you're saying. And I do agree that too often we are being historically imposed upon that we are, we, we are not equally saying Oh yeah, you're taking these five things from our culture. Well, then I guess it's great that you're giving the us ten these ten benefits, right? This exchange, right? Instead, it's more or less like I the feeling that I've I, I feel in the community is this is not an equal exchange, right? That sometimes they they literally rob us well, well, of oftentimes. songs, dance, <laughs> right, right, and 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 beyond that, 
there's a lot of there's a lot of anger and resentment uh, in terms of uh, the condescension, right? That um, even if you're a, a black man or woman and you go to Wall Street, you work, or you're doing your own business, that when you do have to engage with the outer culture, when you do have to engage with um, someone from the elite, that it 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 comes with all these negatives that don't make it worth it. Yeah. And that they're not really seeing you. They're not really seeing you the way you want to be seen, right? And that was and that was my experience. I think that's you know, like I yeah. I, I, sh- I shared. I spent ten years in the banking industry, um, national bank, regional bank. Uh, my navigating mm-hmm. corporate America in my all of my twenties shaped my identity as a person. When right. I walked away from that. Right. The biggest thing that I had to figure out that I'm still figuring out is who do I want to be in this world and um, mm-hmm. who am I in this world, right? Because right. corporate told me that this was professional, that this was unprofessional, that showing mm-hmm. up like this was, un, you know, talking this way is unprofessional. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of trauma doing what what you talked about, right? Knocking on the door of this institution and saying, let me in so I could get access, right? Scary. Um, and so walking away from that has been a very liberating experience. And I can't say that I didn't get anything out of it. But to your point, what's the trade off? Right. Yeah, um, fortunately, right. I was able to experience that, hopefully, so that people who listen to the things that I say don't have to experience that. Um, mm-hmm. But some people will. Some people will continue to live that life. And, and you know, some people will, will pay attention to what I said and say, hey, you know what? Maybe it makes sense for me to start a business. But I could not have started a bit. I could not have started a business if I didn't have those experiences, those skills, fundamentally from right. being in that environment, because I didn't have a point of reference. But imagine if you know right. my dad or my grandfather had a business that I was able to go into and learn these same skills, and then go right. and start my own thing or continue to work on the thing that you know they created. That would have been a different. And you have the trust of somebody that you trust, and you you get to be in a business environment where you're not looking over your shoulder, you're not thinking about what your hair looks right, like, or today. whether or not I can wear or earrings, what kind of if music, I have my tattoos, right, visible. or what kind of music you're listening to when you walk in, yeah. or a particular accent that you might have, yeah, or something like 100%. that. Hundred yeah. percent. So I think um, you know, going back to this concept of financial empowerment, that's part of it. Entrepreneurship is a part of the equation, and that's not to say that everybody needs to be an entrepreneur. Um, or that everybody can be an entrepreneur. And so then, you know, mm-hmm. the, the next layer to that equation is, um, well, you know, how do we work well together? Um, what does right. what does the exchange of goods and services or goods and or services look like so that we can continue to, to you know, exist and thrive without having to look right. outside of the community? So again, going back to this concept of tribalism, I think that... Uh, it's kind of necessary in in order to do what it is that you that you had brought up earlier right Mm -hmm. how can we change this in a generation tribalism right but but trauma has impacted our ability to do that and to do that with trust in one another Mm -hmm. right why is it easier for us to go and hire um a jewish lawyer or a white doctor or you know what i'm saying versus Mm -hmm. somebody that looks like us sure because they right. are considered the standard in the standard, what is yeah. considered care. So um, mm-hmm. lots to unpack there for sure. But I think um, the work that you do, the work that I'm doing, the work that many others are doing is 
it all counts. Every little bit helps. And so, um, yeah, yeah, we just got to keep the mission going. All right. Well, I want to tell my guests, my, my audience, thank you so much for tuning in this week. It's, it's just, you know, I, I think these conversations are only getting better and I hope you're enjoying the content. Remember to share, like, and subscribe. We are found everywhere podcasts are found. We post the last two weeks of every month. This is season two. And just as a last word, I think this this notion of um, maybe maybe tribalism is the wrong word I'm using. Tribalism tends to have a negative connotation. I think really what it is is just community cohesion, I think, is obviously key. And I think it's not offensive. And what I mean by that, it's not about negative integration, right? We are great because they suck. That's not what we're saying. We want positive integration. We are great because we honestly believe we're great. And we're making ourselves as great as we possibly 100%. can. And I think by listening to listening to experts, entrepreneurs like Rakim that we've had today on today, I think will only empower yourself and only make you more literate, which are two different things that we learned today. And in summary, I think it, it's 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 something where if you have Google or your Bing or if you have the internet to your access. You really have the capacity, I think, to change your life in a way that maybe you, you're you not seeing yet. And I hope you got some advice on how to do that today. So I want to thank my guest. Uh, do you have any last words? I do not. I think uh, this was a very wholesome conversation. I appreciate you sharing your platform with me. Um, I would plug sure. my book up again, Financially Irresponsible, available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am active on all socials at Rakim Sabree. So it's R-A-H-K-I-M-S-A-B-R-E-E. And uh, looking forward to continuing to engage. Awesome. And we'll definitely have you back, uh, if not later this year, season three for sure. Uh, this is a never-ending discussion when we're talking about money and financial uh, power. So I want to thank you. And remember, guys, we're better when we trend together. Thank you so much.